Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor at the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent. Each week, Brexit Republic has all the latest Brexit developments from Dublin, London and Europe. Promises, promises. The parties launch their manifestos. So, how are they standing up to scrutiny? The Labour leader does an interview, but did it throw up more questions than answers? How are the polls treating the parties? And how is the health of Liberal England? We'll hear from incoming Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on tough but fair Phil Hogan's new role. And Europe Minister Helen McEntee on the challenges of striking a trade deal in 2020. Well, first to you, Sean. Uh, things in London obviously hot and heavy in the middle of the election, but uh, how are things going on the promise front, particularly in the area of manifestos? What level of scepticism are they being greeted with or with wide open arms? Well, it is scepticism, of course. I mean, our hard-bitten colleagues in the uh, British media love nothing better than tearing a manifesto uh, apart. And they do take manifestos rather seriously uh, here in British politics, much more so than will be the case uh, back home in Ireland. But yes, the last few days have seen uh, the manifestos uh, rolling off the presses uh, to, uh, well, an underwhelmed public, I I I should imagine. Um, The... Labour Party manifesto was, of course, uh, first out of the blocks and made all of the very, very big promises, particularly on spending. Uh, Promises to increase spending did well for Labour in 2017, so they've basically taken the old formula and doubled down on it, promising loads more uh, spending, even compared to last time. Now, this, I think, plays quite well in a lot of parts of Britain because of the uh, austerity years Uh, which have seen rather large cuts to social spending in Britain. And that has been one of the things that many people have said has contributed to the Brexit vote in this country, that a lot of people had become dissatisfied with a degraded quality of life. They weren't getting the kind of social supports that they had been used to. There was just less money around for everything. And a lot of the public services were starting to get a bit frayed around the edges. And this led to people becoming more and more dissatisfied and played into that, this general dissatisfaction uh, that helped to enable, uh, according to many, the Brexit vote. Labour going uh, against the trend there, promising to spend very, very big bucks uh, in many areas. The Conservatives, by contrast, uh, decided to play it safe. A lot of their private polling had been saying, you have to maintain your image as the party of fiscal responsibility. So given the way Labour had pushed the boat out, your average 16-year-old with a, a fetish for spending uh, could look fiscally irresponsible uh, just by saying and doing very little. And that's essentially what the uh, Conservative manifesto did. It was much shorter than their 2017 uh, manifesto. They didn't want to do anything that would upset people uh, or frighten the horses in any way. 
Uh, some were pointing back to Theresa May's so-called dementia tax, uh, a, a mechanism for raising money for social care, uh, an area where the, which has been underspent for many years, which a lot of the parties are looking at trying to figure out ways of covering the cost of caring for an increasingly ageing population. Uh, they didn't want to do anything that would provoke uh, negative reactions in the press. So the, the Conservative manifesto, pretty bland. The uh, Liberal Democrats Cranking up the spending, but just again, comparatively less than the, the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, cranking up spending where you need to spend it. Uh, but a lot of it, remember, is just replacing stuff that had been cut. So these promises of 20,000 additional policemen, which we've been hearing about since the summer, uh, that doesn't quite replace the 21,000 that were lost during the last 10 years of Conservative government. And it's similar things... 50,000 new nurses that aren't 50,000 new nurses. Exactly. There's all of these kind of uh, promises, catch lines, things that sound great on first reading, uh, but when anybody starts to dig into it, they start to, to break down. That's the type of thing that's been going on over the past uh, week or so. Liberal Democrats also pushing out uh, their manifesto, striking, as you probably expect, a kind of a middle ground between the Tories and the Labour, promising to spend a little bit more than the Tories, but nowhere near uh, as much as the Labour Party. And then, of course, setting out their various stalls on Brexit. The Conservatives, this endless mantra, let's get Brexit done and get on with all the other things people want to talk about. The Liberal Democrats at the opposite end of the scale, let's stop Brexit, although that message may be running into a little bit of difficulty and resistance on the doorsteps because of this idea that how can uh, one political party unilaterally cancel the result of a referendum? So it be interesting to watch how the Liberal Democrats negotiate that uh, particular issue uh, on the doorsteps in the, the remaining two and a bit weeks of the uh, campaign uh, to go. And then you've got Labour, again, in between those two, uh, saying, let's negotiate a new deal, we can do that in three months, and then we'll have a referendum uh, on it and uh, see what happens then. But essentially refer uh, a reworked Brexit deal back to the people and let the people uh, have the final say. Uh, and then uh, today, because we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, we have the Scottish National Party, uh, obviously only contesting seats in Scotland, but as Nicola Sturgeon was saying, uh, they have a block of seats there in the Westminster Parliament and a vote for the SNP uh, is, as she puts it, a vote for Scotland to escape from Brexit and also is a chance uh, for people to stop Boris Johnson getting a, a majority in Parliament. Scotland, one of those key battlegrounds where the Tories either must hang on to what they've got or try and uh, pick up some additional seats. I ask people in Scotland to consider this simple but fundamental question before you cast your vote. Who should decide Scotland's future? The people who live here or Boris Johnson? A vote for the SNP on December the 12th is a vote to escape Brexit. It is a vote to put Scotland's future in Scotland's hands. Right. Well, how are the polls treating everybody after uh, all the promises and the launches of the manifestos? Has the spending impressed or is this still in effect a Brexit election where people are ignoring the manifestos, treating them all as fiction and really judging people by their position on Brexit? Brexit is still the salient issue. It seems to be just coming slightly off the boil, but by that, you know, dropping down maybe two or three points uh, in people's uh, list of priorities, but uh, one that's uh, one set of poll tracking just done in Wales 
uh, saw Brexit as by far the uh, most important issue, 57% picking that as their number one issue, down from 60% when they did the same poll three weeks ago. Uh, but that's still well ahead of the next uh, issue, which is health at uh, 47%. Now, health, it has to be said, has picked up in uh, interest terms during that three-week uh, polling uh, window. Uh, so the emphasis of the parties on talking about the health issue, either to distract from Brexit or because they want to differentiate themselves, uh, particularly in the case of the Labour Party, who've been hammering home this message, you can't trust the, the Conservatives uh, with the health service, uh, and the Conservatives trying to counter that. Boris Johnson uh, frequently filmed making appearances in hospitals over the last couple of weeks, as I'm sure you've probably seen. That, of course, brings the issue into public prominence, and people do tend to start talking about things that they've seen on the television or have heard about in the debate. So if the parties keep hammering home different messages about the uh, health system, and we saw Labour uh, at it again today with this 400-odd pages of documents which they claim shows that the uh, Conservative-led government have authorised negotiations or talks or discussions between uh, NHS officials and US drugs companies. That again is feeding into this idea that uh, a Conservative majority government would do some kind of a trade deal with Donald Trump in a post-Brexit world and this might threaten changes uh, and changes that people don't like, particularly rising drug uh, costs. Uh, for the consumers and taxpayers of the United Kingdom. So, again, the more they talk about it, uh, the more the issue rises up. Any traction in it so far? I mean, I've seen commentary on social media, obviously, on it. The tranche of documents has been available apparently since uh, September, and journalists are happening on them now and, 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 and wading through them uh, and having a look. But has it caused any fuss? Is it changing the agenda of the kinds of questions that any of the Tory uh, candidates out on the stump are, are being asked? Well, I think Labour would really love it to change the agenda because the agenda in the past 48 hours uh, has been dominated by the row, the continuing row, and we've spoken before about it on this podcast, over uh, anti-Semitism or allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, uh, something that many people would find pretty incredible, that a Social Democrat Party is being weighed down uh, by... Uh, rouse over anti-Semitism, but when you have the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom writing in the Times newspaper saying uh, that basically Jeremy Corbyn isn't fit to be Prime Minister uh, because of the uh, anti-Semitism issue in the Labour Party, uh, then it is a big problem for them. He did an interview with Andrew Neil for the BBC, very, very tough uh, interviewer, as Nicola Sturgeon found out uh, earlier in the week. Uh, but uh, Jeremy Corbyn did it and uh, it really, really wasn't good. He was offered four opportunities to apologise for the Something he's uh, done before, which it issue. seems strange to people S watching it. That he, he exactly, he's done it before, so why not just do it then? I mean, everybody knew he was going to be asked this issue because it had been the central issue during the day. They had launched that very day their uh, policy on uh, intolerance. Uh, and being intolerant of intolerance, he'd been greeted by protesters uh, as he arrived at the venue for that uh, particular launch of the, the sub-manifesto. So yeah, I mean, everybody knew this, this issue was coming and yet he kept kicking to touch on it and it just really, really wasn't convincing and it absolutely didn't kill off the issue. And then the next day when he goes to another launch talking about trade policy and trying to talk about this NHS issue, 
the questions kept coming from the journalists because about half of the front pages in the newspapers were full of Labour anti-Semitism stories and uh, there was even a, a fairly undignified uh, exchange with Barry Gardner, one of the French benchers of the Labour Party who was chairing this, this event when Libby Wiener from uh, ITN asked about the anti-Semitism stories that were all over the place. Um, Mr Gardner had a go at her, accusing her of uh, trying to have a dig at the Labour Party and not deal with the issues that were before them uh, on that day. It, it just didn't look good at all, so Labour seems to be just digging itself ever deeper into this hole uh, of the anti-Semitism row much to the delight of the Conservatives who are happy to uh, throw in a few grenades uh, as and when they can, particularly on social media. They do have their own issues because the Muslim Council came out again yesterday uh, attacking uh, the Conservative Party over its handling of uh, Islamophobia allegations within that party, uh, not least uh, some charges being made against the leader of the party, Boris Johnson himself. So none of them, the two main parties, um, covering themselves with much glory on that. But I just wonder how much traction it's getting. Uh, yes, it's going to uh, appeal to certain sections of the, the uh, community. They will have an interest in this. How much of the wider society is affected by it? I don't know myself. Uh, it's kind of hard to assess it. It is negative on both sides, but Labour does seem to be getting an awful lot more negativity uh, certainly in the media coverage. It's an issue that's there that they keep getting, getting punched on uh, and it's difficult to know why they don't try to deal with it in a much more decisive way, uh, which it brings us back to what you were saying about that interview. He'd apologised previously. What was holding them back from doing it last night? Uh, it's, it's, you know, I can't. I have no idea. I have no answer for you on that one, Colm. Well, are the Tories, Sean, being uh, scrutinised on anything, particularly this issue of... The, the, the best trade deal for Britain ever, which has uh, had some scepticism raised about the chances of it being achieved in the course of next year. Here in the European Parliament, where I am at the moment, maybe people can hear the uh, echoing around the hemicycle here, the wooden walls of it, as I sit here uh, talking to you. Has he been pressed on it? Has the viability of achieving a trade deal with no extension being put to him at all? And if so, is it sticking? Oh, it has, has certainly been uh, put to him, Colin. I mean, it was part of the manifesto pledge that they are not going to look for uh, an extension and will not look for an extension uh, of the uh, transition period uh, beyond the end of uh, 2020. Now, most people who've had a look at this think trying to do a trade deal in 20, by the end of 2020 is really going to be beyond uh, anybody unless Britain was to simply sign up to whatever the EU puts before them and uh, nobody really thinks they're going to do that. Um, Ivan Rogers uh, has resurfaced, the former perm rep in uh, Brussels, and uh, he was saying that the British government are woefully unprepared for this. He also had a few uh, digs at the EU side as well uh, for not really thinking through what, Their future uh, from a strategic with, level, with the, UK, uh, yeah. the relationship would the UK would be like, indeed. Uh, but the issue of uh, not... Uh, of, of sticking to uh, no extension has cropped up uh, as been uh, the Tories have been subject to fairly consistent sceptical questioning of that because uh, as I said a lot of people don't think that they're going to be able to get a trade deal done and if they lock themselves into not asking for an extension then all they've done is yet again pushed out that deadline for a hard Brexit uh, the hardest of the hard type Brexits uh, until next year. Maybe it is simply uh, election talk uh, that people like Michael Gove go out and very firmly state no, 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 
uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, and then after an election, uh, assuming they get a majority, uh, then they can uh, presumably do what they've done with a lot of other die-in-the-ditch-style promises and uh, or ditch it, to coin a phrase. Um, yeah, we'll have to see on that one. But the as we've spoken before in this podcast, the difficulties of trying to do a deal are very, very considerable. Uh, it is a very, very large amount of trade that's done between Britain and the European Union. And even this idea that because Britain and the EU start from a point of total convergence on regulations, the Conservatives are selling this as a positive to make it easy to get a deal done and saying this means it should be the easiest uh, and fastest trade deal ever. Uh, But as we've pointed out before, it's a precedent-setting deal. Because it is so uh, closely integrated, what happens after that is going to set a precedent. This thing has never happened before. It is literally unprecedented. So the type of deal that's going to unfold is one that I think is going to be extremely closely scrutinised, both in the European institutions and in the national capitals. And I just don't see it moving quickly. I really don't. Yeah, I was doing an interview with somebody yesterday and walking purposefully down the corridor was Michel Barnier, the uh, European Union's point man on Brexit. And I was wondering what he was doing here in the Parliament. And then, hey, presto, up in the Financial Times and elsewhere today popped up a report that he had been meeting with the chairs of committees here in the European Parliament and that there had been a note of caution, if not scepticism, sounded about the viability of achieving a deal or the possibility of achieving a deal in the course of 2020. Our colleague, Eleanor Burnhill, who's overdoing European Parliament report for RTE, um, caught up with Ursula von der Leyen shortly after she was her commission was uh, confirmed. Its appointment was confirmed in the European Parliament earlier on, but uh, Ms von der Leyen was tight-lipped. Ms. von der Leyen, um, congratulations. Um, you described yourself today in your speech as a Remainer. Uh, what are your hopes for a trade deal by 2020 and how will the new Commission protect uh, Irish interests? Um, I think Europe did a great job to protect our member state, Ireland, and it's very dear to our heart and that keeps on going. Um, so another thing is uh, what now the UK election is concerned. There is a good rule, uh, rule never to comment uh, elections. So we'll wait for the British people to show their will. And then I'll sit down with the new prime minister to discuss the next steps. Phil Hogan did a great job as commissioner for agriculture. He is known as a very tough negotiator, but a very fair one. So I expect him, of course, to bring this competence uh, into trade. And do you expect Commissioner Hogan to have a lead role in negotiating Brexit now he has this portfolio? In the trade part, of course, he will be of utmost importance. But somebody we had more luck with in terms of discussing the chances of achieving a trade deal before the end of 2020 was Ireland's Minister for Europe, Helen McEntee. I caught up with her outside of the hemicycle. She was talking to MEPs and members of different groups here in the European Parliament about Brexit, amongst other things. And I began by asking her what she thought the chances were of achieving a trade deal in 2020. Okay, Mr. Helen McAtee, thanks for talking to us uh, on Brexit Republic. Can I ask you, first of all, new commission in today, Phil Hogan is the trade commissioner. He's going to be the point man on trade issues dealing with the UK. A deal by the end of 2020, it sounds a bit of a stretch. 
Well, I think given the fact that it's taken uh, some of our most recent trade deals a number of years to conclude, um, to do it in less than a year is, is certainly ambitious. Um, there's a lot of things that need to happen in the first instance before we even get to that point, elections on the 12th of December. If there is a majority or not, that the deal that we currently have now on the table, if that's passed through the House of Commons, then has to be voted through by Parliament. So realistically, you would be talking the beginning of February before you can get going on the, the task force, which has now been again led by Michel Barnier. Um, I do think it's extremely ambitious and, and uh, there is obviously a mechanism that has been built into the uh, withdrawal agreement to allow for an extension of one or not two years. But this has to be sought by the UK um, and even with that obviously there would be some that would say that that is a challenge within itself because it's taken three years to get even where we are now and Brexit still hasn't happened yet um, but we need to be ambitious we need to be uh, we need to be quick on moving on the whole future relationship agenda so I would foresee if again this is if a deal is passed that from the beginning of February things would start moving pretty quickly. Right but you've got February and then by July the UK has to make up its mind as to what it's going to do about asking for an extension so in all reality it has to be known what kind of a deal or what kind of a bones or a chance of a deal there's going to be by the middle of next year so I mean you use the word ambitious but if you rooted through the thesaurus for another word is there anything else you might say as to what the chances are? Well, look, I mean, we have an agreement in place in terms of the withdrawal agreement, but also a declaration on the future relationship. So this was without getting into too much detail because you can't negotiate on a future trade deal with a country that's still a member. So there is a, a certain level of understanding of the kind of relationship um, I, I think that the, the current Prime Minister and that the UK want, and we have to work on that. Um, but I mean, can I give you a timeline as to what that might look like? I think it's very difficult at this stage. Um, we have to wait and see what the elections will bring first and foremost and, and we've seen in the past that you know elections and opinion polls and everything else aren't always correct so um, we, we need to just wait and see what happens on the 12th of December and take it from there. Well as you say the new Prime Minister he's of the view that the UK should diverge more and more from where the EU is so in terms of hammering out a trade deal the level playing field has been raised, fisheries have been raised. Today uh, Ursula von der Leyen addressing the European Parliament said that uh, environmental sustainability would have to be stitched into any future trade deals. That's an awful lot of conditionality to have T's crossed and I's dotted in for this to be done by the end of 2020. So is, if it isn't going to be done and if, as the UK Prime Minister says, he doesn't want to ask for an extension, are we looking at a potential cliff edge by the end of 2020? Well, again, this all boils down to there being a deal, the current Prime Minister still being in place, and then deciding that we're not heading in the same direction. I think the Prime Minister uh, Johnson's approach is different to Prime Minister May's. She talked about convergence, she talked about having a very close relationship. So while the current Prime Minister talks about having a good relationship with Europe, um, he does, as you say, talk about divergence, and that creates challenges immediately. Uh, how do we have a close, comprehensive deal, uh, one that respects um, the integrity of the single market, the customs union, one that has a level playing field, but also, you know, when we talk about the biggest challenges and, and Ursula von der Leyen's focus this morning, it is on environment sustainability. And, um, you know, I personally cannot see the UK diverging from those type of standards and, and you know, in terms of protecting our environment and looking forward. Um, but again, we have to see what this all looks like if we get to the point beyond the 31st of, uh, of January um, and, you know, 
things have changed before in politics. We, we've had red lines drawn and, and again, things have changed beyond that. So um, I, I think it's very ambitious that we would have a, a trade deal done by the end of the year, but it won't be for us to, 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 to ask that extension. In Ireland, I mean, what are we doing? We are preparing in as best we can. Obviously, our focus has been on the withdrawal agreement, protecting the Good Friday agreement, protecting the border as it currently is. Is the invisible. no deal planning still ongoing? The, the no deal planning is still there, but I think obviously it is much reduced in the fact that we now have two withdrawal agreements on the table um, and I think the likelihood is very minimal at this stage. However, while North-South trade is protected and, and the protection of the invisible border and, and much of what we've tried to do connected with the peace process, East-West trade for many is as important and particularly in our agriculture and agri-food sector. Um, so the future relationship is just as important. So we need to continue to engage with those in industries and sectors because if a trade deal is not negotiated, yes, we have the Irish protocol in place to protect uh, Northern Ireland, protect citizens' rights and the financial settlement. But East-West trade is extremely important um, and we need to have those measures and we need to have business and industries aware of the possible changes, be it around customs, be it around tariffs, be it around uh, access to certain markets and, and various other elements. Um, so we're still engaging, but I, I think people's focus now is on whether this deal will pass and then how do we move on to the next stage. The other alternative on, 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 uh, is that um, the UK Labour Party is saying that it will renegotiate an arrangement with the EU within three months, put it to a referendum within six months. And one of the things they want to do is talk about freedom of movement and how the UK would have, have the, uh, the competence to determine that. That also seems ambitious, challenging, whatever, whatever word you might like to insert there. Would you agree? Well, again, I mean, without getting into to UK politics, we have to wait and see what happens in the election. Um, if Labour are successful, if any other political party are successful, either on their own or in a coalition, um, we have to then engage with whoever would be the Prime Minister then. The Prime Minister currently is Boris Johnson and, and uh, the deal that we have on the table is the only deal that is available. Um, the only deal that uh, I think at this stage would be acceptable. Um, so... You know, it, it's a lot of if buts and maybes, and it's a lot of uh, government, or it's a lot of election uh, promising, and and uh, within the UK itself. So you know, it, it's not really for me to comment on. But we will engage with whoever the prime minister is. Um, but I think we need to be very clear: the deal that we have on the table is the deal that has been negotiated. Um, and I think people at this stage want certainty; they need certainty. We have a, a new commission within the European Parliament that has a very busy agenda, um, a strategic agenda that has been set for the next five years, uh, and for Brexit to continue without any clear direction. Um, you know, the amount of time, the amount of um, people behind all of this, um, you know, it, it, it needs to be focused um, in a much clearer way than it has been. And that was Helen McEntee speaking to me in the European Parliament in Strasbourg just a little earlier on today, Wednesday, as we record this podcast in the evening. Sean, what's coming up on the campaign trail in the week ahead? Anything Brexit related or are the landmines likely to be elsewhere? Well, the landmines, the banana skins, the elephant traps, they're all out there waiting for people. You know, obviously, with the Conservative message, let's get Brexit done and talk about other things. I'm sure they'd like to talk about other things, uh, but not get too heavily drawn into some of them. Uh, 
yeah, they will all be trying to do their various things. There will be a leader's debate in terms of fixed uh, set pieces. There's another leader's debate that's taking place in Wales, uh, in, in Cardiff on Friday night. Uh, not sure which leaders are going to turn up to it, though, because Boris Johnson has said he doesn't want to debate Nicola Sturgeon because she's not standing for election to the UK Parliament. Uh, I would assume the same rule ought to apply then to Nigel Farage, who, uh, though leader of the Brexit party, is himself not standing uh, for election. Uh, to the Westminster Parliament, so we'll have to see who actually turns up in Cardiff. Talking of um, the Scots, there's going to be a big rally for independence uh, in Glasgow on Saturday. Uh, remember the SNP looking for, uh, as part of their post-electoral positioning, uh, they want whoever they do any kind of support deal with to promise them uh, an independence referendum uh, in 2020. Nicola Sturgeon due to speak at that rally. Apparently it's the first time she's spoken at an independence rally since 2014. So something to, to keep an eye on there. Also, um, Friday the 6th, the, the end of that week of next week, is the uh, last head-to-head -head debate between Boris Johnson uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn that will be taking place in Southampton. Uh, and then, of course, the week afterwards, well, it's polling week. And <laughs> the big day, we'll, we, every, the one everybody is keenly awaiting. OK, well, we'll check in next week to see where the polls and uh, other things are at uh, in advance of that. But for this week, for this edition of Brexit Republic, for me, Colm O'Mungan at the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And for me, Sean Whelan in London. That's it. Thanks for listening.